Hello and welcome to the Growth Adventure Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Appel. Today, I am joined by Perry Griffith III from Denison Parking. Perry, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. Glad to be here. We've got a lot of ground to cover here, but before we get into you and or the company, I just want to ask you, as a multi-generational family company, how does your culture think about innovation and remaining relevant? I think it's a good question, Andrew. You know, when you have a company that's 90 years old, like ours is, and has been family-owned for a long time, I think it's very easy for uh, business as usual to take root in an organization, right? Well, we've done it this way for this long. It's worked. Clients love us. The customers love us. Let's just keep doing that. And yet I think as you have experienced, as we have in our industry, the speed of change that's happening in the world around us has only accelerated. And so some of those old norms are having to be challenged. And we are culturally working through some of those changes to become more expansionist in our thinking, to ask questions more regularly, and to create safe spaces as an organization for people to challenge those norms on a regular basis, which kind of can be uncomfortable when you have somebody who's done it the same way for a really long time. And so that's true of any organization, I would suggest, but even maybe more so in a family-owned, kind of tightly held people who've worked together for a long time kind of organization. Well, you you just kind of alluded to it there, but just to kind of level set some of our future questions, you said that, you know, it's it's a good thing to have that people work with you for a long time. Like what, just give the listeners an idea about how big of a footprint company-wide does Dunstan have? and, And typically what's a tenure look like for your colleagues? Thanks for kind of helping clarify for the uh, listeners uh, who, who may not be familiar with Denison. So Denison, as I'd mentioned, is 90 years old. We operate about 150 parking facilities across 12 states. So from New York to Florida, from Nevada to Washington State, from Minnesota to Texas, and a lot of places in between. So we are coast to coast. But we've been in the parking management and services business for that entirety of the 90 years. We have employees who've been with us for four days, and we have employees who've been with us for 40 years. I would say on average, our tenure tends to be longer, which is something that we love and value as an organization. We have a great degree of expertise in the uh, industry that we serve. And so really have leveraged that, I think, to differentiate in the marketplace against maybe some newer kind of startup type of uh, parking operators. I say this with all love and respect because, uh, believe me, nobody ever asked me another question when I say I work in insurance. But (laughs) not to paint with a broad brush, but Parking operations is one of those things, almost like utility, that people just expect it to be there. Mm-hmm. They expect it to work. They want the gates to rise. You know, They want to be able to park their car where they want to park it. But they don't really think about what it is that goes into thinking about locations or is it flat? Is it vertical? What is the technology mm-hmm. like? I, I would just be curious, both from your perspective and maybe kind of, you know, since you do still work with your father, like kind of the evolution of cars and how cars are used in cities specifically and kind of how the parking industry has evolved with that. You're exactly right. Parking is best done when people don't realize it's occurred. You want it to be as frictionless and almost as quiet in the background as it can possibly be. It is not done well when you're like, gosh, this was really hard or boy, it took me a while to get in and out of this facility. Our our goal is to make that very efficient uh, because nobody's goal is to park, right? Their goal is to get to somewhere. 
And we are standing between their journey and that end destination. And so our, our hope is to make that a very seamless experience. That was accomplished about 50 years ago by having a non-self-park garage. So if you can rewind kind of the, to the early 50s, it was more common for people to pull into a drive lane, get out of their car, and a valet would go park their car for them in an entire parked structure and mass. And so you can imagine this novel concept of parking your own car. And in fact, Denison, our history of innovation goes back to that era when we had the, I believe it was the fourth or fifth self-parking structure in the country. I know today that seems just absurd that that would be the case, but that just goes to show you how people didn't feel that they could manage the process on their own. And owners thought this was a great way to provide service. Well, fast forward to today, you know, we control a little over 100,000 parking spaces around the country, and probably 90 to 95% of those are self-park. People handle it themselves. And even many of those are moving into an environment where it's all mobile pay, where you don't actually visit a kiosk or have a gate arm in many cases. So the industry is rapidly transforming to try to make the experience more efficient, less burdensome or disruptive to their course of action. And that's only going to continue as you look at the changes with electric vehicles, you think about the changes with technology and how cars will now speak to machines, so machine-to-machine communication. All of that is being factored into our plans around technology and infrastructure that's required to make a parking uh, asset work the way that it's intended. Well, I'm glad you mentioned electric vehicles, and I do want to come come back to that and technology more more generally. But I kind of want to get back to that at, at more kind of level setting question of fundamentally, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have two different customers, right? You mm-hmm. have the, the users who are you know paying you and or paying the landlord, whether it's by the hour, by the day, by the month, mm-hmm. by the year, to park in a facility that you manage. And you also have the owner of that property. Mm-hmm. I would just be curious, how does, from a, you know, a corporate philosophy standpoint, how do you balance those two at times somewhat competing demands of the users versus the owners? Oh, it's yeah, there is often a competing demand, right? Because uh, we, we like to joke in, in the industry, particularly here in Indiana, that it is a Hoosier right to have free parking in front of the door you want to walk into. Like that is like if every if you ask everybody, they would love to have that as the ability. Well, we know in a dense urban environment like Indianapolis or many of our other suburban markets that continue to have increased density, that is harder to do. And so, yes, the customer would love to have free parking, but the real estate owner, our clients, have to pay taxes and upkeep and maintenance on those assets, which is incredibly expensive to do and growing rapidly in this period of inflation as well. And so we do view it as a customer and as a client. And the customer, we try to provide a seamless, frictionless experience, like I described earlier. And for the client, we want to provide high fidelity reporting. We want to make sure that the financial assets that we're holding for them, uh, their revenue, uh, the expenses that we're paying on their behalf are accounted for down to the penny in near real time and be very transparent with that information. That's one of the unique differentiators that we have. And then also, you know, given we're, we're talking about Gregory Napel and Denison here, we also provide insurance, liability insurance for our customers, as well as many other components. And in that case, we want it to be a low cost, but high, high touch experience for them so that if they do have an issue, 
it's not something that the client or, or the owner has to think about, that we, we take care of that. And in turn, we partner with firms like yourself to help us manage that process as a differentiator to our clients. So yes, we do think very differently uh, between the two. And it is hard to sometimes reconcile the demands of both effectively. We find ourselves monkey in the middle in many cases. And thank you for the shameless plug about our business partnership. And and, and I would say, and uh, we talked about this a little bit before we, we started recording, that I, I think neither one of us knows how long our two organizations have worked together, but I think that is a reflection truly of the continual evolution of both of our companies mm -hmm. and the ability mm -hmm. to innovate and remain relevant. So again, thank you for the shameless plug there. <laughs> Happy to. <laughs> so back to the technology piece briefly. So I, I you know, I think I'm going to just ballpark and say 99.9% .9 of the people who are listening to this podcast have driven a car and have parked at one point or another and probably have done it with multiple iterations of technology, right? So mm -hmm. everything from you pull into a shopping mall and it's free parking and you just mm -hmm. whip your car into the lane and you walk away and you lock the door and you don't think about it to the old school parking meters where you had to have coins to like, I would say version 1.0 of technology where you had the annoying box on street that you had to mm -hmm. go to, to punch in your space number, pay with your mm -hmm. credit card, and then take the paper slip back to said car to kind of you know, what you just referenced now, which is kind of the future of thinking about cars, Technology and cars directly interfacing with technology, either in surface lots or in garages. And from a user standpoint, it's seamless, right? The payments happening in the background, everything's being tracked. I, you know, presumably space usage is being you know, monitored. And if there's no space, no car gets in, vice versa. Mm -hmm. From a business standpoint, so you, you, know, you said you manage a little over 100,000 spaces countrywide. Mm -hmm. Presumably, those facilities have all manners of age to them, all mm -hmm. manners of capital improvements and expenditures. Like, I'm just curious from a planning standpoint, how do you think about this? Because I've got to imagine you go to a parking conference and there's all sorts of amazing technology that you're thinking, this would be amazing. Like, it would be a great experience. And then you're thinking, oh, wait, it's going to take me 20 years to get through mm -hmm. an entire CapEx so I guess what I'm, what I'm asking you is knowing the limitations at which you can deploy with speed technology, how do you think about evaluating technology and how that gets incorporated into the various slots that you manage? That is very true. And, and not only is there one parking conference, but there's three. So I get to nerd out three times a year and, and see all this different technology that's out there to make our customers' lives easier, to increase the fidelity of reporting to our clients, and ultimately just to make a better experience for everyone. And so to your point, Andrew, the assets are wide-ranging in age. You know, you can have an asset that's brand new and we're, we're being built, and so we're planning for the future in those. And you can have assets that are 50, 60 years old that don't have the same level of infrastructure. And so our approach is to think about for our owner's behalf and for the client's what is the return on investment that we can make by changing some of these uh, platforms? So specifically, if we can appeal to a different demographic of customer, if we can capture a parker before they even have left their couch and know that they're going to be parking in our asset, all of a sudden, that's now of value, right? And so the idea of spending $100,000, $200,000 on retrofitting parking equipment within a structure 
all of a sudden begins to become more of a decision on how much revenue are we willing to forego by not making these changes, particularly when the compelling competitive alternatives, the old idea of just driving around and finding a space is what you're competing with. So using technology to attract customers, using technology to retain them because they had such an easy experience getting in or out are certainly things that we're looking at. Today, in some of the garages here in Indianapolis, you can book a parking space on your phone from home. You can drive in, and if your license plate is recorded, when you pull into the lane, the gate just vents if you are there during your reservation window. When you're done with your time, whatever you reserve, maybe you're going to see a game, a Gamebridge Fieldhouse, or you're going to see a concert or a comedy show or something. As you're leaving, if you're in that same avenue, you, you leave and the gate just bends because it knows that you are credentialed to be there at that time, all without you having been able to use your Apple Pay from your couch. You didn't have to worry about it. You knew you were going to have a space. We save them for those customers. And the gate just goes up and down without you ever having to slow down. And so it makes the experience not only for the individual better, but it also makes the experience for all of the customers better because it speeds things up. And so your time to get in, your time to get out tends to be enhanced. So all of those discussions very much focus on how much technology value is there to the end user or to the client. And we weigh that against the capital cost that would be associated with it. And in large structures, that is a big number because you've got a lot of cable, a lot of internet that didn't exist back you know, 10 years ago when some of this equipment was installed. But it's all still, you know, in many cases, supplemented by people. And at the end of the day, you can have great technology, but if you don't have good people who understand how to use it and help customers with it, that's not going to work. So technology won't solve all the problems. And I think there's no substitute for maybe you're leaving a 9 p.m. pacer game. It's 11, 1130 at night. All you want to do is get home. The right. gate won't raise. You hit that help button. There has to be a human on the other end of that. Correct. And, and that was back to the spirit of innovation. We, about 10 years ago, began to have a partnership with a company called Parker Technology. And they run a 24-7, 365 call center based here out of Indianapolis in the WFYI building, whereby they take those calls, not only for us, but for probably in excess of 100 other operators and parking facilities around the country. And uh, they handle nearly 100,000 calls, I think, a month at this point all with that same objective, that when people fail in the face of technology, they need help and they want a real human in under 30 seconds to help them out. There's nothing more pressuring than having somebody honking at you behind in a parking lane as you're trying to leave. When you can't go anywhere, you can't go forward, you can't go back, you're stuck. Exactly. So our goal is to use technology to help supplement or people in the lane. But in that case, Parker does a great job of helping us uh, navigate those circumstances very efficiently. Awesome. And a great example of kind of the hidden economy of you know, the infrastructure that all of us mm -hmm. take for granted that really none of us see unless you happen to be involved in it. So, Our uh, goal is to keep it hidden. <laughs> what, if it's frictionless, that means you're satisfying both your clients and your customers, right? That's right. So uh, I, I do want to uh, pivot a little bit here in just a moment to the dynamics of a multi-generational family mm -hmm. company. But before we get there, this is evolving. So I'd just like you to opine a bit about kind of where you see the parking industry going as society is, I would say, in a second pivot point from COVID, right? So COVID happened. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say it did a, it was a doozy of a number on the parking industry. In That's a good way to put it. Most white collar workers were working for home, 
from for some period of time. And now mm-hmm. we're kind of in a reverse pivot where it's not going to be what it was before. It's not going to be what it was in April of 2020. Everybody's kind of figuring that out, but that has a direct impact on the business model of owners of parking structures, as well as the technology that presumably you're now thinking about, how do I deploy, right? So how how is the industry thinking about regular users of parking facilities in urban areas that mm-hmm. maybe four years ago were in the office five days a week and doing a traditional monthly lease, but now are maybe in three, maybe four days a week, some weeks, maybe two days, other weeks. And, you know, whether they individually are paying for it or their companies are paying for it, like that's now everything has been jumbled again. Right. So I guess I'm just curious from, I mean, your boots on the ground, you're seeing these conversations every day, kind of how is the industry thinking about that and where do you see us landing in the next couple of years? Yeah, it is absolutely what you described. The general trend we see of utilization of parking assets today is that Monday and Fridays are very quiet. So it's very much a bell curve. Tuesday, Wednesday peak, Thursday, you know, a little lower, and then Friday again, very quiet. So it is very much the bell curve that you, you articulated, where two to three days a week in the office is more the norm. The challenge that that creates is on those Mondays and Fridays, the garage is largely empty. And on that Wednesday, when it's at peak, it can actually go full. And so how do you manage supply of inventory when your peak utilization is higher, in fact, than it was pre-COVID? Because everybody's showing up to the office on the same day. Do you adjust pricing? Do you use price as a mechanism to change behavior? One possibility and something that we're certainly exploring. Individuals today used to buy monthly contracts. They're actually more often than not, many of them, Uh, who were self-pay, were not being paid for by their corporation or their employer, are pulling a ticket and they're doing daily parking because the math is more in their favor in that respect. But there's challenges that that creates. You know, if you're a monthly parker, you could come in and go as you pleased. If you pull a ticket, you come in, you leave, you come back in, you're going to be subject to that same fee structure again. So you may double pay. So we're trying to get creative, both through the use of technology, but also pricing schemes that make it more attractive to bring people downtown, make, help them get into the office more efficiently and for a more cost-effective uh, approach. And so whether it's you buy 10 days at a discounted rate and you can use any of those 10 days as you please over the course of a month, that's an option. You know, you can do a five-day option, wh- whatever the right path is. But what we're discovering is when we offer those, they often get consumed faster than the rate that the user thought they would. And then ultimately, over time, I believe that people will probably gravitate towards um, some hybrid between a monthly contract and sort of a a 10-punch card, if you will, to use sort of the the coffee analogy. We're seeing that trend. And then lastly, when you have a lot of supply on a Monday and a Friday, you know, the best value you can find are sometimes in, in remote, you know, surface lots or on street. And so those are great options as well. And, you know, it's uh, if you're a price sensitive shopper and you want to use those, you know, that's that's a very efficient way to go. But if you want to be right in front of the door, you want to walk into like all things in uh, real estate, you know, it it is uh, location, location, location. And you'll have to end up probably paying a little bit of a premium for it. So more segmentation of customer is where I see the world going. Okay, And I presume technology is eventually going to help support that as Correct. The, the world continues to evolve. All right. So moving away from technology and more to the human side. So both of us either currently 
work with their family or have worked with their family. And it is unequivocally a blessing. And so let me just make that mm-hmm. very clear. Dad, I love you. I'm not throwing any <laughs> stones at here. But it also presents a different level of challenge than most people probably think about when they go to work on a daily basis. So I, I would just be curious because you had a whole career for the benefit of the listeners before you joined Denison. Mm-hmm. So I guess, could you maybe share what you're comfortable with as far as kind of what those conversations look like with your father as you were moving back into the business, kind of how that relationship has evolved to kind of where it is today? Yeah, it's, uh, you're, you're right. It, it has been a bit of an adjustment in many ways. And I, I echo the sentiment. It's been a blessing. It's a lot of fun. If you're a, a dork like me who thinks about business on a regular basis, having uh, someone that you've been as close to as your father around the corner that you've talked about business for your entire life right there to bounce ideas off of and kind of bend the ear uh, and get advice has just been absolutely wonderful. But it is different, right? I've worked for large corporations. I've worked for small businesses and and a lot of organizations in between over the course of 15 years uh, before I joined Denison. And so coming into the organization, one of the, I think, unique challenges that any family-owned multi-generational business is, how do you take the culture and the values that the organization has been so blessed by over time and continue to invest in those, not so that they change, but so that they become the core foundation of what the company will be in its 4.0 and 5.0 iterations. And I think that's really been the big focus of it. And so when I joined the company, I would argue that the early days were very much learning, right? What is here? Why are we doing the things that we do? And uh, didn't really try to make many changes. It took me you know, probably less time than I thought it would to say, hey, why don't we start improving here? Just that's the way my my mind works. I would leverage the kind of quote unquote guardrails that the business had set up over the course of its 90 years to help define that journey. Now, fast forward five years, I've learned some of the pretty much all of the organization and the key levers that are in place. And so now it's really trying to manage how adaptable an organization can be to a period of rapid change, right? If everybody's always in a change environment, that's not fun. It's stressful. It it can cause uh, challenges. And so it's really about trying to meter that rate of change in an organization that has not had a lot of change over a long period of time. But really, because the industry is changing so quickly around us, we are finding ourselves in a position where we need to adapt and evolve in order to stay ahead and on the front edge of what our clients and our customers expect. You know, every time Apple introduces a new way to pay for something easier, our clients immediately expect for us to be able to implement it and the customers demand it when they pull up to a gate. So how do we incorporate that? It used to be a cigar box and cash 40 years ago. (laughs) Now it's Apple Pay. Maybe it's Alipay. Maybe it's Google Pay. Your digital wallet. You know, all of those things are things we have to adapt to and account for every penny that gets collected and every expense that goes out in real time. And so that is definitely a challenge. But at the same time, in an organization that has those guardrails because of the history and trust of working with one another, it allows you to push that envelope a little bit further and maybe faster than you might otherwise be able to. Because you do work in an organization, I would argue, that has a high trust equation. Well, it's so funny you mentioned the the payment technology. There was a fascinating article in The Economist a couple of weeks back about 
from a retail perspective, depending on the demographic of your customer, that there is a discernible trend that consumers will leave a brand if they don't provide all the options that they expect. And yeah, so when you said Apple Pay, and that is by far a very common one, uh, I was just yeah. chuckling because I was like, man, that's so true. But but I think that's that's the thing that, you know, five years ago, Apple Pay didn't exist. So when I joined Denison, it had just maybe been in its infancy, uh, you know, right around that time. And now it is the de facto kind of most of the probably young drivers today that are in their 16 to 22, 24 are probably using it as the primary mechanism. So how in that short window of time does an organization like ours, who has a really strict process around revenue control, manage that? new additional input. And I go back to, we can lean on the history, we can lean on the familial ties that we have as an organization. Also, we can be the benefit of having uh, someone uh, like my father or yours working in the business. They've seen a lot of change. They've experienced it. And so, hey, yeah, you think it's changing fast. Well, here's another example. And so learning by storytelling, I think is a great way to um, have an opportunity that probably a lot of executives don't get the privilege to have where you can run a playbook and say, Hey, what, what happened last time this occurred? And you get that benefit. You know, the old adage is, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. You know, I think that that tends to hold true in most businesses and most industries. Learning by storytelling, that is a a great phrase. And I'm so glad that you shared that one last family question. Then we'll, we'll pivot to the lightning round. What is something that, I know you've learned many things from your father, but what is one thing that you've learned from your father as he has allowed you to be air quotes, the man, mm-hmm. and he stepped back from being air quotes, the man that you mm-hmm. said, man, I didn't appreciate that at the time, but that's something that I want to emulate. It's a good question. A lot of thoughts come to my mind. So when you say, what's the one, uh, narrowing or, it down. What, what is one? It doesn't have to be the one. What, yeah. is, what is one example? You know, I think the notion of regardless of where you sit in the organization, having a deep sense of gratitude for the work that we do for our clients and for our customers, I think is really core and foundational to it. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in the chair that I am today, or if you are uh, helping get greet a customer coming into a garage for an event. Um, no matter where you sit, being uh, gracious and having gratitude for the fact that we have the opportunity to provide that service, I think is probably core. And he's emulated that every day in the way that he works. You know, we have a saying around here that we want to treat everyone like they're a part of the family, whether it's a customer, a client, or an employee, you're a part of the family. And in our family, you know, we're, we're big on sort of the notion of gratitude and just being grateful for the fact that we are here today and that we have the opportunity to uh, hopefully help make somebody's life better. You can always make it better. You can make it worse. Why not focus on making it better? And I think that's something he certainly exhibited and demonstrates in his daily life and one that I uh, strive to uphold uh, going forward. Well, thank you for sharing that. To pivot to the lightning round, so I'll ask you right. a couple questions here. There are no wrong answers, only long answers. So, <laughs> Good. Perry, what would we find on your car radio? NPR. Thank you, WFYI. Please give, <laughs> not just in the annual fund drive. Second question, what would we find on your bedside table or e-reader? Uh, right now, I am reading uh, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. Well, that sounds like one I need to to flag for future reading. (laughs) All right. uh, This isn't a gotcha question, but cats or dogs? 
Dogs. Sorry, cat people. Again, another dog book. <laughs> All right. And last one. This one's a little bit more serious, and it's kind of similar to uh, the question I asked you before the lightning round. What is one, not the best, but one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? Probably by Kevin Turner, the former COO of Microsoft. Uh, was there for about, I think, 15 years. Helped triple their revenue. When he retired, they had to split his job into five. And I was sitting in a meeting with him when somebody asked him the question around work-life balance. And they said, KT, what does work-life balance mean for you? You know, you, you're the second in charge of one of the largest organizations in the world. How do you, how do you handle that? And he said, I think work-life balance is a myth. He said, I focus on work-life harmony. He said, I've recognized that work at my role is going to impede on my personal life. But I've also set expectations at work that my personal life will impede at times with work. And so I try to strike a balance, not in the sense that it's a trade-off, but rather that I work every day to try to create harmony between two very important aspects of my life, work and home. And I thought that was a very insightful change of frame that um, he deployed in how he thought about time and time management. And so the notion of creating harmony versus trying to find a balance or a series of trade-offs is one that I've tried to live by uh, ever since I heard it. Easier said than done. Well, thank you. That's great advice. All right. So before we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to uh, share with our listeners a little bit more about Denison Parking, both about how they may um, knowingly or unknowingly interact with you, as well as kind of where we can expect to find Denison in the future. Yeah. Well, the, the good news is, whether it's here or around the country, you know, Denison is proud to help support uh, some of our municipal clients, our, our public university clients, as well as uh, the private institutions that own and, op- and have these assets all over the country. And I would say our job is best done, as I said earlier, when you don't know that we're there. But going forward, if you are curious about finding a wonderful place to park that is easy, clean, and efficient to get in and out of, do check us out at denisonparking.com. All of our sites are lo- located there. Also, don't assume that you have to just pull in and, and pay then. We're working very hard every day to help you select the venue of most convenience to where you're trying to go through the web and our various partners, whether it be Park Mobile, uh, whether it be ParkWiz, Spot Hero, you name it. There's a lot of platforms out there that we leverage today in order to get you to your end destination faster. And so if you do have any parking needs, don't hesitate to reach out anytime. And if you have questions or ways or suggestions on how to make it better, we are all ears. We're about trying to improve the experience and would welcome any input. And remember, listeners, the fee you'll get for parking in a fire lane is much more expensive than paying Denison to have a nice, clean, available spot. So That is true. Perry Griffith III, president of Denison Parking, thank you so much for joining us today on The Growth Adventure, and I wish you the best. Yeah, thank you for having me. Glad to be here and uh, look forward to hopefully another 90 years. Likewise. All right. Thanks.